Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis and The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I am excited to talk about these two books today. We're doing this a little differently and just bringing a pairing to the podcast for discussion. Yeah, so... At first, and I, st- I mean, I still think this was a good idea. It's going to be fun to talk about these in conversation. But as I was getting like my notes and my thoughts down about these, I was like, oh my goodness, how are we not devoting a single episode to each of these books? Because there's so much to talk about. So I'm really glad we're going to talk about these with Classics Club for Book Club because we'll still get to process and talk about more. Yes. Each of these books is more than worthy of its own full episode. So we're being a little ambitious here to try and squeeze them into one. And I think we will get to throwing out a couple of pairings towards the end of the episode, but we're not going to do a full treatment of our pairings. So that'll give us a little bit of extra time to get into these, but we're on the clock. So let's just, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're going to do, we're going to have a little mini discussion about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first, and then we will talk a little bit about The Golden Compass, and then we're going to put them into conversation with each other and allow that to be also a larger conversation about the role of children's fantasy and So we have a lot we want to tackle today, and I'm really looking forward to this. So let's start with The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Chelsea, do you want to give a quick summary of this one? Sure. All right. So in The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, four siblings find themselves living with an eccentric professor when they retreat to the country to escape the Blitz. During a game of hide-and-seek, the youngest sibling, Lucy, finds the entrance to a magical world through a wardrobe in a spare room of the house. Lucy meets a fawn named Tumnus and discovers that the realm of Narnia is filled with magical creatures, talking animals, and tremendous peril, as it's ruled by a witch who has cursed the kingdom to be always winter but never Christmas. Eventually, all four siblings find their way into Narnia, where they meet the magnificent lion Aslan and must battle for the soul and very existence of this fantastical land. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was written by Christian theologian C.S. Lewis, and it's often read as an allegory for the story of Jesus's death and resurrection, but C.S. Lewis took some issue with that reading and had a lot to say about sort of separating his story from pure allegory. He always said, this started with a picture. I had a picture of a lion in my mind. I had a picture that I saw when I was younger of a fawn with an umbrella that always stuck with me and I just wanted to write a story about it. But it's really hard <laughs> not to read this book as allegory. <laughs> I mean, can't it be both? I I yeah. believe <laughs> C.S. Lewis when he says that it started with those images. But I mean, it's very clearly connected. 
Yes, very clearly connected. And, and you know, the series, of course, we, we know the series goes on. And I think maybe as the series grows and expands, it becomes a less clear literal allegory. Um, but yeah, it, it can be both. What, <laughs> what is your past experience with this book or the Narnia series overall? I loved this book when I was a kid. I don't remember exactly when I read it, but I'm thinking like fourth or fifth grade maybe. And I still have my childhood box set. And I can tell, I know that I read the whole series, but I can tell that I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the most because it's definitely more well-worn than any of the other books in my box that like they're all pristine except for this copy (laughs) um and so it was special to like have the smell of my old childhood copy as I was reading I also loved so I read the book loved it and then I had a VHS copy of the 1988 BBC adaptation which apparently won a bunch of awards I didn't know that Um, and I wore that thing out. I loved watching the adaptation too, which watching, I like watched some clips of it on YouTube now. It's like really freaky. I don't know why I liked watching it so much as a kid. It's kind of scary. Adaptations of kids fantasy can be really scary. I feel like that's one lesson that I have learned this month (laughs) from Alice in Wonderland to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's some scary stuff when it comes to converting what's on the page to what's on the screen. <laughs> Definitely. So I I really loved this book as a kid. It As I was reading, I, I very much vividly remembered and just felt like, I don't know, like I was a kid again reading it in some ways. Not every book that we have read so far for the podcast has felt that way to me, but this one definitely did. Like reading The Golden Compass, I had no really very little recollection except for like a couple of scenes that I could kind of remember. But this one, I really remembered probably because I read it multiple times for sure. What about you, Sarah? I, I remember both this one and the golden compass really vividly. So, um, I, both of them felt exactly that way. I loved this book too. I agree. I love the whole series, um, but this one was the one I returned to again and again, this one and the magician's nephew, which I think I might credit for my continuing love of prequels, which I think are mm. always superior than sequels. <laughs> Those are the <laughs> two that I really, really loved. Um, and then in high school, a couple of, a couple of C.S. Lewis connections. So, um, a long story, but through some some circumstances, I found myself attending an evangelical Christian high school for my junior and senior year. Um, and two things happened at that school. <laughs> One, I was I played Susan in the theatrical version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. And second, By an additional batch of circumstances, I ended up not having to take theology class at this school, but I had to do an independent theological study. And I did a C.S. Lewis like author study. So I read a bunch of his nonfiction. 
I read more of his, um, well, I read Till We Have Faces. That might be his only like adult kind of fantasy novel, which is fantastic. And I reread the whole Narnia series. So I kind of studied it that way. And I don't know that I've reread it as an adult, but that experience was so formative that it felt like I had, like I'd read it with more adult eyes at some point Mm -hmm. in that study. Um, And I really loved returning to it. Did, Did you enjoy returning to it? I did. I did like it a lot. I one thing that I really, really liked was just reading it as an adult and sort of recognizing the narrative voice. Um, it's very British, first of all. <laughs> Both of these books are very British. Um, and just sort of the like gentle guidance from the narrator through the story and just sort of being a little bit removed from it. And that actually kind of surprised me because as a kid, I remember being in Narnia, right? But as an adult, because of the sort of removed, omniscient, separate narrator, I didn't feel that way nearly as much. Not because I'm not like using my imagination or something, but because of that narration. Mm -hmm. Um, So that surprised me upon returning to it. But I still, I still really liked rereading it. I've always intended to read more of C.S. Lewis. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. And so I'm really eager to hear how some of his other writing on faith and myth and religion sort of shaped your view of this book. Okay. Well, first, I one of the, my thoughts that... I kept having while I was reading this was we were a little bit hard on Madeline Langle's dated language. And I was wondering, I was like, do we just excuse this because it's British (laughs) and it just feels like cozy and British to us. And so therefore less dated. I I had that question in my mind the whole time. And oh, I it's very dated. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, I remember thinking the same like this. Okay. So But thinking about like when this came out, this came out in 1950 and then Langle was like 10 or 15 years later, right? So Mm -hmm. they really didn't have that much time in between. No, no. Um, They feel like, I feel like we could have done this episode about these two, those two books together. Oh, totally. Like, I mean, all of these books are in conversation with each other. Alice very much feels like the outsider, Mm -hmm. which we can maybe get to towards the end of the episode or with our book club um, about why that might be. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, I really enjoyed learning about C.S. Lewis's faith in, in high school. Um, I have, I have not returned to any of his nonfiction since then. So, you know, it's all very muddy in my mind, but I, I think two things kind of stood out to me at the time that I'll share, because I think they might frame our conversation a little bit about Philip Pullman too. I mean, Lewis was, he was very much, you know, he, he was very much a Christian and very much believed, right, that was the path to, to heaven and to eternity. But he was a little bit like kinder about it than some of the other things we read in my school. And I remember two things he always he often used this allegory of like finding your faith as a train ride and 
Sometimes, he said, you are on the day train and you see every landmark along the way as you journey from one country to the other. You know the moment you cross the border um, of two countries and have arrived someplace else. And sometimes, he said, you're on the night train and you're on the train, you drift off to sleep. You're not quite sure how you arrived at this new place, this new shift, but you did. And I thought that was so beautiful and kind of contradictory to some of the other things I had been taught. And the other thing was rereading The Last Battle, which I think has, it's possibly quite problematic and I would like to revisit it. In that book, there is one person, (laughs) there's one person of color from a non-Narnia country, but in that fantasy land who ends up in this kingdom, which was, you know, represents heaven. And it might be Aslan comments, you know, somebody's like, what's he doing here? Kind of thing. And somebody comments that, you know, worshiping another God from a place of good, good faith is the same as worshiping, a, you know, being a member of Aslan's you know, community something along those lines. Now, there was only one, one person there, which I think speaks to a bit of maybe about what C.S. Lewis was saying about that. But I remember still being struck that that was in there, Um, that there was some, even for, even in his kids' literature, there was some willingness to reckon with this idea of what about people who haven't heard of this religion? Or what about people who practice another religion and, you know, have all of the markers of faith that Christianity, you know, so there's just, there's, there's some things there that really stuck out to me. And I think are maybe even evident in this book as well. I admire the way that he and other faith scholars like him wrestle with their faith on the page. Mm-hmm. And that's a big reason why I've I've always wanted to to read more from him. I do remember, so I went to Lutheran school, kindergarten through eighth grade. And so I had a lot of faith education at the time that I was reading this book. And so the allegory was very obvious to me. Um, but I do remember, and I think that a large part of why I was so drawn to this book is that my faith education was treated as so factual, right? It was very Protestant, very, um, very, I think it was Missouri Synod Lutheran, which isn't as strict as Wisconsin Synod, but like very Lutheran, (laughs) Um, like Wisconsin German Lutherans here, (laughs) very factual and much less emotional than other sects of Christianity would be like the evangelical tradition I see as very emotional. Mm. But all of our classes, it was just, there was no questioning what was said in the Bible. There was no questioning, you know, these stories or passages, this is what happened. And I, well, I really like thinking about my faith intellectually now I think as a kid reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
and having such an emotional connection to Aslan through the characters, specifically through the girl characters who have a very special relationship with him Mm -hmm. and who are the ones who take care of him um, and who spend his last moments with him and find him when he is resurrected um, very much like um, the women in the Bible um, with Jesus. I think that this book offered me an avenue to allow some more emotion into my faith experience and just to like feel um, just feel some emotions in this book that we weren't exploring in religion class. And I think as an emotional preteen, that was really, really appealing. And I do think that was a big part of why this book, this story, the the visuals of the BBC adaptation appealed to me. I love that. And I I know we're really, we're going to hold off on connecting these books and getting to larger themes, but I just have to point out that that is so in line with something Philip Pullman said, which is when he, he was talking about his own kind of atheism and his kind of more sacred view of literature. And he said, thou shalt not might reach the head, but it takes once upon a time to reach the heart. And I really think that these two men agree on that issue, <laughs> even if the ideas they're exploring are in contrast. I think so too. C.S. Lewis had a lot of really interesting things to say about literature in general. And we will include a link to his essay on literary criticism. But um, I think one thing that he says in that essay is sort of the difference between receiving art and using it. And he really wanted the Narnia series to be received and enjoyed as story, as fairy tale, rather than all of these people using it as a Christian tool of hammering it into people's minds, the religious allegory. And so he does recognize, he's like, yeah, there are Christian elements in here, but they they entered into my story because I am Christian and this is what, mm-hmm. this is my worldview. So this is how I'm going to create other worlds. But he specifically says there's there's this difference between using literature versus just being a receiver for it, which I think is really interesting. That is interesting. And it also just reminds you of how like once your books are out there, you can't really control how they yeah. are used or received. Um, but I I love knowing that about about him. That feels in line with some of the other things that I've read and loved of his. So Beyond, I mean, there are all these Christian elements and we can talk more about them, Um, but within those or beyond those, what stood out to you thematically as an adult reader? And and maybe in particular, because I feel like this is where we've gone with some of our other conversations, what did you think this book was saying about the experience of being a child? Okay, this is tricky because I don't know that it says a lot about being a child. Aside from one thing that I really think of is how child's play feels like going through the wardrobe and then coming back and 
no time passing. That's like a big part of this book. And that's such an iconic part of fantasy and time travel and world hopping books in general of like time being different in different worlds that, you know, it's so iconic. But to me, that is what it felt like as a kid when I was in my imaginary world. Like you go and you play with your friends and you're playing some pretend game or you're by yourself and you're playing some game associated with whatever fantasy you've created. When you, your parent knocks on their door or calls you into dinner or whatever, it feels like no time passed. You are completely (laughs) lost to your world and it could be getting dark outside and you didn't even notice because you were so wrapped up in what was happening. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe feels like that to me. They go into the wardrobe. They have all of these adventures. They age. They become rulers. All of these things happen. And then they pop out. And it's like no time passed at all. But they remember what happened because it's important to them. And play is very important for kids. I think that shows up in The Golden Compass very significantly as well. The second part of like childhood that I associate here with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is actually something from Lewis's essay. I think that reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it doesn't feel... I think part of why I liked it as a kid is it feels very adult. Like the kids are kind of treated like adults. They're on their own. The older siblings are taking care of the younger ones. They're in this world and they're treated like grownups. But C.S. Lewis says... And this is more about like reading children's books as grownups. He says, but who in his senses would not keep, if he could, that tireless curiosity, that intensity of imagination, that facility of suspending disbelief, that unspoiled appetite, that readiness to wonder, to pity, and to admire. The process of growing up is to be valued for what we gain, not for what we lose. Not to acquire a taste for the realistic is childish in the bad sense. To have lost the taste for marvels and adventures is no more a matter for congratulation than losing our teeth, our hair, our palate, and finally our hopes. Why do we hear so much about the defects of immaturity and so little about those of senility? He really wanted adults, I think, to enjoy Narnia too. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was pretty adamant about grown-ups getting to enjoy fairy tales. And this isn't that shocking. He was best friends with Tolkien, okay? Right. (laughs) Both of these guys were creating different worlds um, and doing something kind of new and different for literature at the time. Um, And so when I'm reading this, I, I am curious to hear what you think about what it says about childhood. To me, I think C.S. Lewis is bringing that view of his that that children and adults maybe aren't as different. It's just that we lose a lot of that like curiosity and wonder and just like being able to get lost in another world when we grow up and that that's not something to celebrate. I think that's really interesting. And I, I think that is maybe an intriguing point of conflict between these two books, what they say about becoming an adult and reaching adolescence. Not that I think that they're polar opposites, but they certainly, the authors are exploring different aspects of that. I think that what you're saying is really true, especially in the professor character whom I just loved. I will say one thing that I found so surprising rereading this was how quick 
tightly paced this was like they're like they're in Narnia in no time. I I don't know why in my memory there was much more set up and build up and that it just it's it you move at a quick clip in this book. So the professor wasn't actually on the page as much as I remembered, but I did love him and I loved that they had this adult who believed them and trusted mm-hmm. them and supported their um whether it was flights of fancy or real exploration of other worlds. I loved, I loved that. And I think that the professor is very much showing that bridge or that ability of an adult to not lose that childlike wonder if they try hard enough not to, and if they believe and listen to children, which I, I love. I do think that the children are very much treated as adults. And I think that that might be one of the actually hardest things for me in this book because of the addition of the Christian allegory and elements. Like, you know, Edmund is a huge jerk. I actually mm-hmm. didn't remember him being that mean. He's so mean to, yeah, he's to Lucy. He's horrible. But to put on a like nine-year-old or whatever that... Well, now because you were mean, this, you know, godly being is going to be put mm-hmm. to death. That's a really heavy weight. And I think I chafe against that both within the allegory and maybe <laughs> within the larger, mm-hmm. n- not necessarily religious tradition, but maybe how it's sometimes communicated to young people and children. And I respect Pullman's like pushback against that in his series. So I I think that there is a like weighted responsibility to childhood decisions in this book that feels a little heavy to me. I think it's done well because of the fantastical world and because of the joy in this book. Like there aren't a lot of rules that must be followed. Like the the belief in Aslan and the being welcomed into this kingdom is very much about joy, like mm-hmm. and not about rule following, which I appreciate. So yeah, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Kind of my tug and pull between those two feelings where I really like the joyfulness with which he's exploring these ideas, but I resist the degree of heavy responsibility put on kids. But I think as a kid reader, you wouldn't think that you would be like, this is so cool because Mm -hmm. I can change the world. Like the responsibility is positive in that, Mm -hmm. that reading. Well, and I, we gloss over the historical context so quick in the beginning because it's just like, Oh, they're, they're dropped in the countryside. Right. And yeah. <laughs> their home Again, is being the bombed and their parents are away. Yeah. Well, yeah. that would make you grow up really quick if it was if it's World War II and your parents put you on a train and you're in a totally unknown place in a creepy old house and you have no one really caring for you or watching over you. And C.S. Lewis had kids in his home. Um mm-hmm he experienced the situation. It's partly what inspired this book and what, what inspired their names and, 
and all of that. And so he had a clear view of what those kids would be like and what they were going through and how they had to grow up so quickly through that. So um, I do think that there is a little bit of historical context here that can go missing among all of the religious overtones. There's also a lot of like Norse mythology. There, there are other mythologies that he mixes in here. Um, and so I do think so often it gets, you know, reduced solely the Christian allegory, but there's a lot more happening, um, particularly with the World War II historical context that I think you can read into the world he's creating and the battles as part of that too. Absolutely. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And I think that that's important that he was very much a scholar of myth and and legend and it's all woven into this book in a really lovely way. You know, I I was thinking because Edmund is again, Edmund is horrible. <laughs> but I think a little bit about his desire to feel special and coddled and I mean, I, I feel like that's really understandable and relatable, like not the way he's so cruel to his his siblings and et cetera. But I do, I, I, I think that's some of my resistance to little women at times too, that like that spirit of self-sacrifice, which is so important to the historical context. <laughs> and I think, you know, selflessness is a really important value and charity is a really important value. But I, the, the desire of a child to feel special feels okay to me <laughs> to like validate a little bit. And so I, again, I think that the reason I still love this world so much more than some more like realistic children's fiction is that the moralism is is woven into the fantasy world, but also that his book is really about finding joy. Like it's not like the other children are praised for being martyrs or are despondent and Edmund just wants to have a little fun and he's, you know, it's it's not that element. Um, but, you know, Kid just wanted a little Turkish delight. And I I feel like I could empathize with him a little bit in this reading. I think another, even though Turkish delight is disgusting. It is. I remember my fifth grade class yeah. having it. I don't know this if it's is, because yeah. we read the the book or whatever. It was it's gross. Yeah. It's like chewy jello with uh -huh. powdered sugar. Powdered sugar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um okay, so Sarah, I have two things before we okay. move on. All right. One, I think another reason why we really both love this book so much is C.S. Lewis himself says, even though there are all these fantastical, outrageous things that happen in this book, the story is also, quote, full of the simplest and most attainable things, food, sleep, exercise, friendship, the face of nature, and even, in a sense, religion. The whole story, paradoxically enough, strengthens our relish for real life. This excursion into the preposterous sends us back with renewed pleasure to the actual. It's true. It does just make you want to have like some tea and scones and right? a warm meal. And a, yeah, I like, I love that quote. And I do like, I appreciate the uh, 
times he tells us like, oh, they found a nice cozy place to go to yeah. sleep. <laughs> and they, yeah. they like are listening to their bodies throughout. They're like, we're hung as they're packing with the beavers. They're like, we're going to mm-hmm. get hungry on the way. So we better pack some food. It's like all of these things that make you a human are not just skipped over because they're in a fantasy world. They're still mm-hmm. hum- very much humans in this world. Um, the second thing, which when you were talking about how quickly the pace is and how it's just like really you really jump from one scene to the next it just made me think of I actually turned to Curtis while I was reading this and there's a specific part where the narrator actually says I could go into detail about this but I'm not going to like (laughs) we're gonna move on and I turned to Curtis and I said it is no wonder that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien got in arguments over their books because they're so (laughs) polar opposite famously J.R.R. Tolkien Mm -hmm. hated Narnia (laughs) and C.S. Lewis hated Middle Earth. Like they did not like each other's work. They read it and they offered critique to each other and they were still besties, but they did not like the other's fantasy novels. And I'm like, oh, this must be why, because if Tolkien was writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it would be a thousand and twenty pages and the battle scenes would last forever. And every little detail of every little creature would be written about. But C.S. Lewis is just like, "Ah, we're moving on. (laughs) Yes, I do. I really appreciated the momentum of this novel. It was fantastic. Oh, I love that. Okay, well, let's switch gears and let's talk a little bit about the Golden Compass, and then we will circle back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to to put these into conversation. So The Golden Compass begins at a fictional and fantastical Oxford University where Lyra Balakwa is a young orphan girl being raised and educated by the masters of Jordan College. Lyra's life is thrown into upheaval by three events that happen in real quick succession at the beginning of the novel. So her best friend, Roger, goes missing in a batch of many children going missing. There's the presentation of a startling image by her uncle, Lord Asriel, to the masters of Jordan College. And then there's the arrival at the college of the dazzling Mrs. Coulter, who wants Lyra to be her assistant. Lyra finds herself then in possession of the, a magical golden instrument of the title that may predict the future and on the run from a dangerous organization conducting experiments on kidnapped children. Pullman's world includes embodied animal demon companions, mystical witches, and talking lovely polar bears. As part of an anti-authoritarian message he views as a vital addition to children's literature. So, Chelsea, you alluded to the fact that you had read this previously. Do you remember much about your prior reading? I remember that I had a friend also named Chelsea. I was one of three Chelsea's in my... I w- yes, I was of one course. of many Sarah's. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. Hence um, the desire to feel special. Right. Edmund was probably like, I'm one of 10 Edmunds and this witch, she sees me. <laughs> um, but anyway, so my friend Chelsea read this series first and then gave it to me to borrow. And Chelsea and I were like the readers of our class, right? Like we were just tearing through books. And she especially was a very, very advanced reader for her age. And I actually feel like I probably had not reached her level quite yet 
when I read this, I remember kind of like not loving it or getting it as much. So I think I read it when I was just like a year too young. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly when this was. I know it was probably like maybe sixth grade. I think I probably could have waited. I think I probably could have waited until like eighth grade, even high school. This is mature. I think it's a mature book. Um, I also, I, I remember reading the second book. I don't think I read the third, so I've never finished the series. Um, and I remember, I don't know if my mom read the book or if she was talking to Chelsea's mom about it or if the school was like, we're not going to put this on the reading list or something that my mom was like, I don't know if you should be reading that. Like, it's kind of, kind of like weird. I think it's like the, <laughs> the witches yeah, and the yeah. demons who aren't like, they're not satanic demons. They're the no. animal companions, whatever. Um, so... I don't know. My mom might dispute that, but that's like what I, that's just what I remember. And so reading it this time, gosh, I could not put this book down. I couldn't put it down. I'm so glad that I went back to it. It is so good. It's mm-hmm. so good. I think I read this in, I know I read this in high school. After I read all the C.S. Lewis books, I was like, oh, I'm going to read mm-hmm. this too. Cause it's obviously in conversation with it. Um, absolutely loved it. I must have reread it again as an adult. I know that I read at least parts of it when one of my coworkers at my Jesuit school was proposing a class where they would read Paradise Lost, The Golden Compass, some of C.S. Lewis. He proposed it many times and the board always turned it down, which is really unfortunate because I just feel like that that just sounds like the essence of a Jesuit literary literature class mm-hmm. to me. I think it would have been fantastic. Um, but so I, I had a lot of conversations with him about what that would look like and um and revisited the story then. Interestingly, I was just out in DC and my sister-in-law was re- was reading this series for the first time and she was in the middle of the third book and she was telling me about it and I was like none of that sounds familiar. <laughs> so I want to say that I finished this series but it might be that I too read the second one and not the third but she said they do get like much more advanced, much more philosophical. I might keep reading them. I haven't decided yet. There are just so many good things to read, but I, I loved reading it again this time. I know. I thought the same thing. I was like, this might actually be a series that I want to keep going and finish. I've heard really good things about the HBO adaptation. Um, I haven't seen that either, but I've heard that it's phenomenal. So yeah, I watched part of the first season and really liked it. And I I think that the subsequent subsequent seasons are supposed to be even better. So I'm definitely interested in returning to that as well. Okay, well, we we kind of led with in our Narnia conversation with some of Lewis's views and what might be working allegorically in that book. So, I mean, let's let's do the same with with Pullman. He wanted this again to be an anti-authoritarian message, which I, I kind of take issue with the idea that that's not in a lot of other children's literature. I feel like that's 
somewhat prevalent. But he uh, he views himself as as an atheist, but he talks about the what he calls the school for morals, which he is what he calls in many ways like the the literary canon or just literature that he doesn't have a spirituality but he thinks moral education is essential and that that happens through stories so um he he said i don't profess any religion i don't think it's possible that there is a god I have the greatest difficulty in understanding what is meant by the words spiritual or spirituality, but I think I can say something about moral education, and I think it has something to do with the way we understand stories. So he talks about Macbeth and like what could be learned from reading Macbeth, and then he talks about he actually talks about Emma and the scene where Mr. Knightley corrects Emma's behavior, and Emma feels so embarrassed about the way she treated um, Mrs. Bates. And he said about that scene um, and others that we can learn what's good and what's bad, what's generous and unselfish, what's cruel and mean from fiction. There is no need to consult scripture. As Pullman once put it in a newspaper column, thou shalt not might reach the head, but it takes once upon the time to reach the heart. So I, I think this is so fascinating. And so with his story, I think that we should, I mean, think that maybe maybe differently from C.S. Lewis, he is thinking about his books being used for moral education, but he sees that as not only separate from religion, but that he wants to provide like a critique of the way Christianity views sin and particularly like the, the fall of man, um, et cetera. So, I mean, there's also a lot of connection in this book to William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience and a questioning of whether we should view kind of the transition from childhood innocence into experience as a loss rather than a gain, um, or at the very least, neutral. <laughs> so I, I, there's so much philosophy that he's exploring here. I think it's hard to put it in a couple of quick sentences, but um, I, I think I just find that tension between him wanting to explore morality and a distancing from religion to be really fascinating. It is really interesting. I also think that Lyra is often trying to decide what to believe. Mm -hmm. And so while he is, you know, a self-proclaimed atheist, there's a lot of questioning in this book. And, you know, questioning authority, yes, but also just questioning. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that that is one of the things I really love about this story is, you know, I think maybe as a young reader with certain expectations about the fantasy genre, you want there, you maybe wanted there to be sides, right? There are, there are always sides in mm -hmm. these books. And, you know, when in the opening scene, when the, one of the maesters 
I want to say maester because of Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just master. Um, tries to poison Lord Azriel. Mm-hmm. You think he's in the wrong, right? That mm-hmm. Lord Azriel is like good and lucky to escape. And then Lyra has this moment with the master and you're like, hmm, maybe like he's onto something and Lord Azriel is dangerous, right? Then you know, I think it's pretty obvious to fantasy readers that Mrs. Coulter is not going to be good news. Um, but you would then expect maybe, okay, so maybe Lord Hasriel was the good guy and had it right after all. And there's just not that easy answer. So Lyra is maybe forced to question more than children in other fantasy novels where there's such a clear division between the good and the evil. Um, I, I think that probably is unsettling both for children, maybe, and for, for parents or, or, you know, teachers trying to like explore this. Um, but I think it makes for a really good read. And instead of looking to, because she basically can't trust anyone. And instead of looking to like stories that she heard or, faith or her education for answers she's looking at the compass and reading this compass which part of me was like okay she's just reading this thing out of nowhere and it's supposed to be eccentrically complicated and (laughs) nobody else can read this thing um and she just does it and she knows but she like goes into herself to read it and I think there's something really striking about that sort of like kids are not often taught to listen to themselves and listen to their gut and to their intuition and in order to make decisions or in order to move forward and see the world. And so I found that really fascinating. I loved that too, because I I think of the the demons, which are fantastic. If you haven't read this book, every person has the embodiment of their soul um, as like an animal companion. And until they reach puberty, it can change forms. Like it kind of is experimenting to find its happy place. And then once they reach puberty, it settles into a single animal shape. So yes, they are the souls, but I also read them as that intuition um, especially for the the children and the conversations she has with Pan, he often is, you know, not like the angel on her shoulder, but that internal driving force, asking the right questions, seeing the things that she needs to take into account when making her decision. And and I too love that in, intrinsic internal investigation of both her conversations with Pan and the looking at the the compass. What do you think about the demons changing for the kids and then staying the same once they reach a certain age? As someone who is turning 31 soon and still feels like, I still feel like I'm changing all the time. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know if I could pinpoint a certain age where I was like, oh yeah, that's me. Um, And I actually, when I'm finding myself a little bit lost or kind of like, who even am I anymore? 
um, which certainly over the last year and a half, having a baby, you start to be like, who even am I besides a milk machine or a snack machine or someone who rocks someone else to sleep? Who even am I? I often think about, okay, well, who was I as a kid? What did I enjoy in order to get back to myself? And so I don't know how I feel about the demons changing shape and then like I, I don't know what do you what do you think about that maybe if this book were written now in the millennial generation they wouldn't take <laughs> their final form until no i i think that's a really interesting question i i love the i idea of it as it works in this world within the confines of this. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't read um the demons as personality so much or interests so much although I think that that's was maybe part of his intention. Um but that in reading them more as that like intuition that that the idea would be that as you get older, you get more confident in that intuition and it becomes more solid and more stable. But I don't know that that's true. I think that you're absolutely right that there is a sort of a, a reality for children that they are more just naturally themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's something that like that naturally yourself is more, I don't know. I, 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 this actually makes me want to keep reading to see if yeah. he, he has more of a answer for that as it goes on. Because I think that you bring up a, like, like an extension of the philosophy into real life prompts this kind of question. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting one. I'm trying to scroll. There was an interview that I read and Pullman said something about, oh, here it is. Okay. I don't know if you said before that there's a lot of Paradise Lost and Milton in this book and that's like very intentional. But um, something that Philip Pullman says is that of course this is a retelling of like the of Milton's temptation and fall but a lot of that happens after the golden compass and he wanted to represent that fall from innocence as good like it is good for people to know things it's good for them to grow up it's good for them to become sexual beings that's like direct quote from him mm-hmm. that it is good to kind of shed childhood innocence and move into adulthood And so maybe that's kind of where that demon shape shifting comes from. Um, Because there is, it seems, you know, the book kind of views that stasis of the demon as celebratory. Um, It's not a bad thing when when your demon stops and decides what it is. Yeah. And I, I don't think that he, to use demon in a different way, demonizes childhood, even as he celebrates that maturing like I don't Mm -hmm. I don't to me it doesn't feel like he's like well actually the state of innocence is the problem but just that there is this 
yeah, complete flip of that Christian view of the fall being the fall, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the shift, the problem to that idea of. And, and I think that connects to the golden compass itself because it runs on dust. Dust is what makes it work. And dust, as we understand it in the confines of this particular book, is a particle that represents experience and or what the church would call sin. And so it's what's helping Lyra see her way, right? She's using this instrument that taps into her experience, her maturing understanding of the world in order to know what to do next. And I think it also, I mean, it, the book ends with her unwittingly, but but committing this act of betrayal against her best friend. And I think there, there's a real sadness there. I, I think the end of this book is so sad, mm-hmm. but it also is what propels the story on. So there's at the same time, this understanding of the book that yeah, there might be a moment or a string of moments as a child where you just, you do something that just kind of shakes you out of this, this fog that like your actions can't really hurt somebody else. But that knowledge is essential, I think is what Pullman is, is exploring in this rather than it being, you know, like an Edmonds situation, Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, just the end until somebody wipes it clean again. I mean, maybe now we can get into sort of connecting these two. Like, I don't know that they disagree about that as much as you might want to think. Like I, I, I don't think that C.S. Lewis is suggesting that like we should all just, you know, the world would be better if we all just continued like more blindly and innocently. I don't know. It seems like, and not in an intentional way, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan and various characters have to teach the children how to operate in the world. Lyra just knows, Mm -hmm. partly because she has been playing games with the other children that then she draws on for real situations. Like when the kids are like fighting in the sort of like big culminating scenes at the end, she's like, this is just like when we did this all together back at Oxford and we had to do this and this in order to win the battle. Um, And of course, she's reading the compass, which is just coming from her. Nobody taught her how to do it. That is where it seems to like diverge to me. Mm -hmm. She has everything that she needs because she's just because humans are inherently a mix of good and bad, inherently just human. The good and evil seems more like an outside source in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and humans can make those choices. It's not like we don't get a lot of internalization from the kids in that book. No, that's a really good point. Like they're just told in very different styles. I also like how much of a liar Lyra is Mm -hmm. and that she's not, I mean, she's sometimes shamed for it by others, but she doesn't 
internalize that. She mm-hmm. just she uses her stories as she needs to. Um, and that that's fascinating. She's a great character. Um, I really enjoyed being with her. But yeah, I mean, I think in regards to Pullman's like professed message of anti-authoritarianism, it really makes sense that Lyra's learning is her navigating through the world. I mean, and she, she encounters other people who are wise, like York the bear and, oh, what's the man's name who she is on his boat? Oh, I know. I know who you're talking about. The boat man. He's very wise. (laughs) And so she, she learns from them, but not because it's like, like prescribed lessons, Mm -hmm. which she shuns from the very beginning. It's because she respects these people and the way they move through the world. And it's not necessarily saying that those are the only right ways to move through the world. She's just taking what she needs and what resonates with her as she journeys on. Um, I, I, I really, I like that. I think it makes for just a really challenging, but interesting reading experience. And I, I do think that ultimately like the tone of each book is what largely sets them apart. Even as an adult reader, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe feels like, you know, turning to like this soft place to land. It's very comforting and cozy and even as an adult, I think the Golden Compass is really challenging in terms of getting you to think about the way you view the world. Um, and I, I really think that that those questions it prompts is probably more why this book rubs some readers the wrong way versus like any specific message it's trying to communicate about religion. Like, I don't, I don't think that the takeaway from this book is like the church is trying to remove you from your soul. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I think that it's a, it's a much broader um, question that he's asking throughout. Although that does happen. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> maybe that is what he's saying. Sarah, I think this is a good spot to ask the closing question that, that you posed. Do you want to, do you want to ask? This just really thoughtful question that you have. So, yeah, I just was thinking about this a lot reading both of these books because they do this so differently. Um, And I think it very much connects to conversations we are having about books and books for young adults and book banning now. So question is, what is the role of children's literature in moral religious, philosophical development? And then how do we feel about books that have these sorts of moral, religious, or philosophical projects? This is mostly a question to myself and our readers, (laughs) but, but I would love to know if you have thoughts. I think this is something that we'll continue to talk about as we keep reading children's literature. This isn't relegated to fantasy, although I think in children's literature, you can work out a lot of morality and ethics when there's a world that is a bit removed from your own. I think that there's a special, just a special thing about fantasy that 
that allows us to do that. But as I was reading, especially the Golden Compass, I was thinking about how a lot of kids, just because of pure brain development, think in very black and white terms, good and bad. And how in addition to just experiencing life, literature, rather than offering prescriptive morality, gives us a place where we as kids can experience the gray area. And I think a lot of really good kid lit does that, where instead of being really pedantic and moralistic, it's getting kids to think about more of that like in-between, vulnerable, more nuanced place that they don't access on a regular basis, but will as they grow and mature. And so that's something that I, I kept going back to and that I think about as I'm reading more of our kid lit selections. Yeah, I I think this question is on my mind. I I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, I already brought up little women in this. Mm-hmm. Which and we didn't like because of the exactly high and mighty moral tone. Exactly. And so I've been thinking a lot about that with the golden compass and thinking about, is it the storytelling convention that makes one more palatable to me? Is it the morals themselves? Like, am am I just, do I just not really like the moral values that it feels like Louisa May Alcott is um, Mm. exploring versus the ones I see in some of these other books? Um, And I, I, I guess I'm thinking about it a lot too, because Louise is so obsessed with her books. She learns so much from books already. Mm -hmm. Like we have this book where a little kid falls and gets hurt and then gets a hug and feels better. And she wants to read it like every time she falls, she Mm -hmm. goes and gets the book and like reading it helps her like process it. And I'm just thinking about like all of the things she's going to pick up in books. And I mean, I am, I I want her to read whatever she wants, but I'm starting to like feel the, 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 uh, peril that parents feel about like, what if the wrong book, whatever that means ends up in her hands? Cause she's so impressionable. (laughs) And like, I, I don't think that there is such a thing as the wrong book, right? It's, it's like the processing of it, et cetera. But there, it's just, it's interesting to just think about what we as humans learn from stories and kind of the power that we give authors and books when we invite them into our brain space. So I, 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 I don't want, <laughs> I don't want anyone to come away being like, oh my gosh, Sarah's becoming a book banner. Like, no, not, <laughs> not, even, not even remotely close. It's just revisiting children's literature reminds me of the power that fiction and stories have and how, like, yeah, it can really change minds and hearts in this beautiful way. And so I, I, I am interested too in the idea of 
children's literature that has kind of a project, like has a, because all books have a worldview behind them. Like nothing is apolitical. Uh, nothing is like without a sense of ethics when we encounter it on the page. And so it's just been really interesting to think about. I don't have an an answer for my own question, but I, I am really glad that we paired these two books because I do think that's part of where I'm landing with this is how essential it is to read books that challenge each other and are in conversation with each other rather than only reading books that come from a similar viewpoint. And to be sure, these books are both very Eurocentric, Mm -hmm. you know, focused on white characters. I don't think The Golden Compass is particularly like anti-colonial in in any sense, uh, maybe as it goes on. Um, So even within these two, there are vast disagreements, but they're also very similar. Western worldview. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it just all of this is just reminding me of the need for more diversity of thought, not just diversity of experience and perspective, but diversity of philosophical thought and ethics within literature. Hmm. So much to think about. I'm really (laughs) excited to talk with Classics Club and hear from our readers. And I have a lot of thoughts swimming now about just parenting and book banning and how if we, it's really hard because I can get so fired up about it and really disagree with the reasons that people are wanting to ban books from the classrooms. But if I'm going to someday stand up at a board meeting or have conversations with fellow parents and try and keep books in the classroom, it has to start from some sort of common ground, right? And the common ground is that we all want to protect our kids from whatever we are afraid of. And that we know as parents, no matter what we do, no matter what values we instill in our kids, no matter what we teach them, they will go out in the world and be barraged by everything else. The Golden Compass might offer more comfort in that sense, knowing that everyone has their own sort of inner compass and is instilled with some of these like deep and still with some sort of deep morality, whatever that means. <sighs> okay, yeah. I don't that doesn't feel like a final thought. It's just that is part of what's now swimming around my brain. Well, we both have a lot more to say, which we will. If you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, you can sign up for our Patreon at the Literature Scholar level and join us at 7 p.m. Eastern for a book club discussion of this. If you listen late, you can still join us. We don't air recordings of our book club episodes, but we'll post some show notes after the fact. Um, And make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter, which is novelpairings.substack.com, where we'll share some of the articles we referenced today and other articles that will help you think through some of these big questions. Before we go, I'm just going to throw out pairing titles. 
Um, one is Babel by R.F. Kuang, which is, I think, very clear in terms of what side it comes down on, but it's fictional Oxford is so reminiscent to me of the Golden Compass, and it very much has a post-colonial, anti-colonial lens that I love. And then two fantasy books that don't feel, uh, that feel a little bit more morally ambiguous to me, or like they're really rooted in the stories rather than the projects, but probably have some really interesting takeaways. Uh, one is Piranesi by Susanna Clark. That's for adults. And there is a um, one that's a man trapped in a trapped or living in a mansion filled with statues, one of which is a fawn with an umbrella. And Susanna Clark said she was very much inspired by Narnia for this book. And then the other is a book called A Face Like Glass by Frances Hardinge, which is a book set in a underground world where only the wealthy can afford to buy facial expressions. Everyone else is expressionless. And it is weird in the best way. And it's a book I'd love to see more readers pick up. It's YA and it's, um, it's so good. So those are my very quick pairings. I have two. One is The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald, which is another book I remember reading as a kid, but I, I remember very little about it now. But this is actually a book and an author that really inspired C.S. Lewis. And it is about a princess who discovers a secret set of stairs um, and thus kind of like a different world. Um, and so The Princess and the Goblin kind of falls in line with these very British children's fantasy novels. And then The War That Saved My Life by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley is about a 10-year-old girl. And this is um, in World War II. She is disabled and she has a really cruel mother. And so when her brother gets shipped off to war, she kind of like sneaks with him and ends up away from her mother where she learns to do all of these things like ride a horse and all of these things that she wasn't allowed to do because essentially her mom was like really ashamed of having this disabled daughter. It's a Newbery winner and just like all of the sort of true historical themes behind The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this book explores in a very realistic non-fantasy way. So The Princess and the Goblin and The War That Saved My Life might be books that you want to check out if you really enjoyed these two. All right. Well, my voice is giving out, but <laughs> this spring we are continuing to explore the world of classic children's literature in your podcast feed and with our Patreon community. We would love to see you at our live online events this spring. Our Classics Club is so much more than bonus episodes and book talk, although those things are fabulous. Together, we're learning to be better, more critical, and thorough readers of classic and contemporary literature. We love discussing books and reading with all of you, and we hope you'll join our Patreon group of nerdy readers at patreon.com slash novel pairings. Annual subscriptions are now available at a discounted price. For announcements and important updates from us, subscribe to novelpairings.substack.com and be sure you're following us at novelpairingspod on Instagram. Thank you so much for writing such sweet reviews for our show. We've said it before, we'll say it again. 
Those reviews make our hearts very happy, but they also really mean a lot to us as small business owners. Reviews help boost novel pairings in the Apple podcast algorithm so new listeners can find our show. It helps our show grow. And so this is a really good free way that you can support our ongoing work. So go to Apple Podcasts and write a quick review. Thank you also to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to discuss Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. 